In terms of why we started the quality edit, it actually started as a side hustle. Um, and just authentically, we could not find a publication that we ourselves would want to read. Many of them weren't covering the brands and products that we ourselves were authentically trying and buying and testing every day. Ladies, gentlemen, everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. We are a B2B publishing brand focused on the business of media. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Esther Thorpe. And Peter isn't here this week because he's off doing something. How do you say it? Quite exciting. Quite exciting and important, but I'm sure that he'll discuss that when he gets back. And that clip you just heard was from my interview with Laurent Lyman and Lee Joselowitz, who are co-founders of The Quality Edit. Now, TQE was founded in 2021 when Lauren Lee and their co-founder Scott felt that there were no digital publishers providing high-quality recommendations around fashion, travel, and beauty products. But they decided to launch their own, and it was a really fun interview. I learned a lot about a technique they're terming performance publishing, and we're delighted to be able to share that interview later this episode. Which reminds me, did you see that piece earlier this week that was from an independent publisher saying Google keeps prioritising fake reviews, like yes. all, all really phony reviews from major publishers over actual reviews from indie publishers? I did. I think we included it in the newsletter. We should dig that back up and include it in the show notes. <laughs> But this week, rather last week, we spoke quite a lot about bad news that had happened over the past week and then highlighted a few good examples. Uh, maybe it's a good thing that the podcast wasn't started at the start of this year <laughs> when it was just like layoff, 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 layoff. Yeah, now now the year's sort of getting going a bit and um, we're getting into what is forecast to be quite a heavy M&A year after, I think 2021 was really quiet after a sort of post-pandemic um, splurge. So we've had, well, well, we'll go through them, but the Independent uh, was rumoured to be in talks to take control of BuzzFeed and HuffPost in the UK, which I thought was really interesting. Now, prior to this being mooted, and I think the Financial Times actually broke the story, prior to that being mooted, had that partnership, that tie-up ever sort of occurred to you as a, as a good idea or even something that was on the cards? Like HuffPost and The Independent would, in the sense that they're, they're editorially they've, they're sort of on the same... They've got a sort of similar wavelength. They're, they're, and they're left tone. aligned, aren't they? Yeah, basically. they are, yeah. Uh, and I'd, I'd have said there's quite a bit of alignment there. BuzzFeed's then just a really sort of... I, I'm assuming that'd be BuzzFeed UK. It's, it's a bit mm. of a random one in there because, again, that tie with HuffPost and then closing down a BuzzFeed News UK was quite surprising. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I spoke to the indie about two years ago now, and I really need to catch up with them again, but it, they were talking about this e-commerce splurge that they were doing. You know, they were talking about it in a very measured way. And obviously BuzzFeed for years and years, I mean, it was one of General Pratty's, you know, nine boxes was their e-commerce strategy. And they've since done incredible things with Tasty, um, who I spoke to again last year, and they were phenomenal in terms of kind of their ambitions and their focus on audiences they wanted to talk to. So I can see it being decent addition to the indie's e-commerce approach. It, it's only, they're only in talks, aren't they? I don't think anything's been confirmed yet. I'm not, I'm not from BuzzFeed's point of view, I don't really know what, what they get out of this other than they don't have to worry about the UK arms so much. I think what was notable here is in the tone around the reporting said that this is a, effectively a, an explicit scale play. And it goes back to what we were saying last week, and I think we'll be saying for the entire year, that their scale isn't working unless you are at the very, very high end. The Mushy Mill has expanded to the point where you're either the world's largest media organization or you are a tiny one with four people and everyone else in the middle is just getting pushed out because of this kind of the doldrums of digital advertising. So I guess it's that where the independents seeing that, you know, there's a couple of million extra sort of impressions and things here and just saying, you know, we could we could actually take that for fairly minimal resource investment. BuzzFeed stock did rise significantly off the back of this news, presumably because everyone else is looking at the scale that is now available and going, that's it. That's the opportunity. 
Yeah, and I think you've put in the notes that actually the independent is in a good position financially. It's it's profitable for sixth year in a row. I don't I don't know what position taking on BuzzFeed and HuffPost would put it in because they're not doing so well financially. Anyway, anyway it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. Like I said at the time of recording, this has just mooted the Financial Times reported it, then it went everywhere else. We included the newsletter. So yeah, we'll have to wait to see what occurs. But that's not the only BuzzFeed news this week. That's not, that's not the only reason BuzzFeed stock has risen this week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so BuzzFeed has sold Complex, which is um, a, a, a suite of entertainment brands they acquired back in 2021. So they, they acquired them for $300 million. Um, they've sold it for $108 million to um, live stream shopping platform. N- I, I, all I see is Ntwork, and I know that's not how it's <laughs> I, think, I think it's network, right? <laughs> N-T-W-R-K. Mm, the twerking network. <laughs> it needs just network. They've just taken all the vowels out, right? Yeah. yeah. But it looks like... Entwork. Mm. So, <laughs> anyway, Entwork are the new owners. Quite, quite a cut in terms of the valuation there as well. Now, I, I confess, I didn't, I barely remembered Complex and what it was when this news got like when this news broke. Uh, it's, it's effectively a sort of like entertainment based platform, isn't it? It's like film and TV stuff. Yeah, I mean, they've got they've got some things like some food brands as well, which BuzzFeed have actually retained. They've mm. they've retained a food brand called First We Feast. Um, That's a good name. That's a good name. <laughs> I've, this is all making me feel really old because I feel like there's so many brands like this that have just sprung up that you just I just can't keep track of them all. <laughs> anyway, um, a media operator's Jacob Donnelly is actually speculating that they may all be looking to bundle up First We Feast and Tasty, which is one of BuzzFeed's sort of homegrown food brands, into like a sort of food brand package mm. super deal later down the line. Because um, that you know that, that that would be a substantial food audience they'd have there. But anyway, so so once this was announced uh, late late last week, a shares jumped from twenty two pence. Uh, no, wait, wait, what is it called? Cents, cents, cents. <laughs> I was like pence. No, no, that's not right. Wrong, wrong. <laughs> shares jumped from twenty two cents to fifty cents, which mm-hmm. is a hundred twenty six percent increase. If that sounds low, that's because it is. You're not really supposed to even be listed if you're, <laughs> your shares under a dollar. But anyway, that's a that's a whole whole of the conversation. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's all go at BuzzFeed. More than any other digital pure play, apart from potentially one we're going to be talking about in a minute, BuzzFeed has undergone such a transformation over the past couple of years. You know, when it was, it was riding high when it had kind of, you know, investment going into BuzzFeed news. It was doing some fantastic journalism, but it also had this uh, disadvertising and e-commerce based engine behind that to really fund it. They built so much of their business model on the social platforms and mm. yeah, I can remember BuzzFeed News used to be, not BuzzFeed News, BuzzFeed itself used to be an absolute powerhouse of a page on Facebook. And once Facebook and the platform kind of turned those dials down, I think they've really suffered. They've, all been like, they've almost been scrambling to hold it together since then. Because they'd always That's- managed to do well despite their catalystical reputation. Um, yeah. And part, part of the other reason, and this is possibly to me being a bit cynical, is like, I wonder if the original audience they targeted when we were all sort of 20-something have just grown up. Yeah, potentially grown up and in the same way that we're seeing a lot of the legacy news organizations, you know, people are getting their news on social platforms and the legacy operations don't necessarily have a foothold there. It's just, it's like a fundamental shift in what people find funny and entertaining online. You know, once it was, to your point, listicles, once it was quizzes, and that still takes up a huge amount of like the day-to-day operation of a site like The Beano, for instance, where it is predominantly very young people who don't, in theory, have a presence on like TikTok. And I think this this does tie into our final story is that all of that now is about consuming content on the platform and not going mm. back to the website. Whereas all the all the revenue and the growth and everything else they saw, 
maybe five, six years ago was based on, oh, there's a quiz that's popped up on my Facebook feed, but you click on it and it goes to the BuzzFeed website. Yeah. BuzzFeed have a good and a substantial TikTok presence, but they're not, they get virtually no revenue from that unless I've got a sort of partnership or if it, or deals behind the scenes. But it, it's this, it, the more the platforms have, have built up that wall of like, you, you, you come to our platform, you consume content, video, whatever else on our platform, and we're not sending you to publish the websites. Brands like BuzzFeed just become much, much, much harder to make a success, I think. Yeah, the, the, some of those crucial links and the kind of the chains between platform and publisher site have been severed. I, mean, I, I used to love BuzzFeed when I was a student, and you know, I'd, I'd do the quizzes in order to get out of writing my essays at uni. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's sort of, yeah, it, that's that's how my own relationship with it has changed. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I just don't have time to do cat quizzes anymore. You know what? That's I think that's <laughs> totally fair. You know, there comes a part in your life when you have to put the cat quizzes down and pick something else up. Now, for me, it was hard drugs. But we'll see. <laughs> for me, it's babies. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's opposite ends of the same, same scale. Yeah, they still <laughs> leave you exhausted. <laughs> they leave you exhausted now to pocket. They're very much the same thing. Uh, but you, you neatly teed up our final story here, and it's the biggest one that is breaking this week. Now, we're recording on the Friday. So, this could have all been confirmed in much more explicit terms by the time the episode goes live on the Monday. But it looks as though Vice transitioning away from its owned and operated platforms to effectively becoming a studio model. Bizarre move, I think, and it's one that's caused a lot of confusion. In fact, let's start with how it broke, because it was pretty disgusting in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So the Hollywood Reporter actually broke the news on Thursday, and uh, Vice management was then totally unresponsive. You know, they were not reachable by people internally. They were totally silent in response to queries. And that then prompted journalists to start saving their clippings, downloading all their stories en masse on the understanding that the site would eventually disappear. I saw Gareth Davies, who's the editor of the Bureau Local, just earlier, a couple of hours ago, saying on Twitter that the deletion of the articles from Vice is an act of cultural vandalism. And, you know, whatever you think about the actual articles, it's it's certainly true that getting rid of them of vice.com as it is is that kind of contributes to that erosion of the internet as a, a source as, as a as an archive and record of events why, but, why is this something that increasingly happens like why why is it when i, I get if you're taking over a site that's slightly different but why if you're shutting a website do you just delete everything why not just leave it there as a sort of archive well uh, surely at least you get some ad revenue from it it's a shame peter's not here because he has a contentious relationship with vice but i feel like he would fall on the side of you know you need to keep this up just for the journalist's sake if nothing else yeah, I mean, the, you know, the way they handled it by just icing out even the editor in chief and just not letting anybody know what's going on is just there's there's no there's no excuse for that. Whatever is going on at the top, you need you need to be clear and transparent with people. But eventually, a memo from Bruce Dixon, who's vice media chief, confirmed that several hundred staff are going to be laid off. Uh, I don't think there's been a confirmation yet about how much of those are editorial, and that the brand is no longer going to publish content on Vice.com. Um, Refining29, which we've spoken to Refining29 quite a few times, haven't we? In the past, yeah. Yeah. That's set to continue, although uh, Vice is now, quote, in advanced discussions to sell this business, and we are continuing with that process. Vice itself is actually carrying on as a brand, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's still got a substantial social media following. It's got several million followers across YouTube, Instagram, all that. Um, But I I think there's just been the sort of thing that... um, I think the press cassette news that's pointed out today actually that people that their target audience that sort of eighteen to twenty four, again that was their target audience a decade ago. That audience have grown up, but anyway, um, aren't going to vice dot com and mm. type like typing in their website and going to vice dot com to get 
the news, people are just going to social media, seeing Vice and being like, oh yeah, okay, cool. So they're carrying on across social media platforms as, as far as we know for the future. It's just that Vice.com is going kaput. So a question I want to pose to you here is, we spoke about this a little bit last week. Is tone of voice, is identity enough of a differentiator in media now to you know, make a business viable? Vice, for you know all its criticisms, had a very strident tone of voice. It, in fact, it was so unique in its identity that it was so easy, it was easy to parody in a lot of ways. You know, there was a, a fantastic series called Documentary Now by uh, Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, and they parodied vice journalists in an episode called Drones, The Hunt for El Chingon, where a bunch of like hipsters went into, infiltrated a Mexican cartel and just got repeatedly murdered over and over again. And that kind of had that vice, we've sent 24-year-old into a war zone <laughs> like approach to news coverage. But is that enough? I think if you look at some of the things that are going on with the creator economy, I don't I don't think publishers can top the level of crazy of some of the things mm. that go on on <laughs> YouTube anymore. Yeah, they can't, um, they can't compete with Mr. Beast. Having never watched any of Mr. Beast, I can't comment. The scale of his stuff is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, he just locked 100 people in, bla- in glass boxes. <laughs> I had to Sorry, t- what? I, so, okay, so there's 100 glass boxes, right? And they're all labeled like zero through to 100. And somebody of that age is placed in each box. And they're given tasks to see what is the like. Sorry, they're locking babies in boxes. Yeah, I assume that they can get, <laughs> that people can get in and out of these boxes. But it's like, yeah, and then, then we give them tasks and we find out what is the optimum age to do like the majority of tasks. Fun experiment, terrifying. <laughs> Okay, and uh, like, we've got we've got Charlotte Henry of the edition who's going to be doing a regular column for us on kind of what what publishers can learn from the creator economy. But I think that in itself speaks <laughs> to it that publishers actually can't be that that loopy. Yeah, <laughs> just and for every for every Vice report you've got being flown into a Mexican cartel, you've got a YouTuber <laughs> who is willing to do something just as if not more insane and probably in a better and funnier way without kind of the. Legal implications. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I suppose it goes slightly beyond the kind of the very high profile stuff because where else would you publish an article entitled uh, "Deep Inside the East London Chain Pub Piss Dungeon," which was perennially on my mind after I read it because it is a w- ridiculous story. But that was a, a decade ago. Probably nobody except Vice. But these mm. days. Whoever wrote it can just go on Substack and publish it. You know it. what? You're not even wrong. Yeah. But then that goes back to what we are saying about that kind of the mushy middle expanding now. You are either an individual creator with, you know, X number of followers enough to support you, or you are the MIT or potentially even the Indie or the Guardian. Anyway, it's been a bad week for media layoffs. Um, Engadget has just, as of the time of this recording, announced it's doing some layoffs as well. Is there anything we can take away from this other than the fact that it's just a hard time to be a journalist? left at kind of the whims of your of the, of the paymasters or the bean counters, as I need to say, in lieu of Peter. I mean, I think from from reading a lot of these stories, one of my thoughts was just, you need to know who your audience is and young people just doesn't cut it anymore. No. Yeah, if, you're, if your target audience is 18 to 24, and that has been the case for the last 10 to 15 years, you need to have a bit of a look at yourself. Yeah, long, hard bath with yourself. Just very, very... <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 it's fine to target. Yeah, you know, if you want to be a sort of youth-focused publisher, but you either the people that were very familiar with your brand and, and knew it and loved it grow up and grow out of it, 
and you, know, you can grow with them mm. or you need to kind of keep it cool and I suppose go where the audience is and, and that's not Facebook anymore. And I don't I think, I think Pretty, Pretty needs a bit of a long path for himself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it feels like he's, he's very much scrambling to hold this together at the seams. Yeah. Although again, know, J- Jacob Donnelly, Jacob Donnelly did quite a good, um, quite a good How Do You Fix BuzzFeed series a couple of weeks ago. You know, people are interested in particular topics and themes and being young is not in and of itself a topic or theme that you can monetize. It's just... No, I mean, do you, do you, do you think scale is truly dead? It's such a rarefied position. How many people can do that? How many people can be the NYT, can be the Guardian? Who can be Washington Post? I guess that's where the legacy branding is really coming into play. Mm. Well, let's let's just we're we're, we're kind of close as media voices to being to that scale. So I feel like just another <laughs> couple of years, and then we'll be like punching punching at the weight of the NYT. This week, I spoke to Lauren Kleiman and Lee Joslowitz, who are co-founders of The Quality Edit. The Quality Edit is a recommendations-focused news operation which has an in-house marketing arm in addition to its independent editorial output. I spoke to them about what it means to be actually authentic, which, as we mentioned earlier, is timely given the revelations this week about those low-value recommendation journalism being employed across the entire web, what they mean by performance publishing, and how they persevered through the early days when success wasn't guaranteed. Yeah, first of all, Chris, thank you so much for having us. We're honored to be on. Um, Lee and I actually met back in our Ritual days. So Ritual is a very fast growing and iconic brand in the D2C ecosystem. Um, I was founding team and running our brand marketing and Lee was our head of growth. And we partnered very closely on Ritual's most lucrative um, partnerships. Um, and so that's a little bit on our history. That was, um, I don't know, I guess four years or so ago now, but in terms of why we started the quality edit, it actually started as a side hustle. Um, and just authentically, we could not find a publication that we ourselves would want to read, um, every day in the past, we would read, you know, blogs or, um, uh, yeah blogs like Man Repeller or Into the Gloss, but we felt like there were basically a bunch of traditional publishers, think of like Business Insider or Condé Nast or Meredith, Um, but many of them weren't covering the brands and products that we ourselves were authentically trying and buying and testing every day. And again, this was, you know, four years ago when we started the Quality Edit, and especially then, I feel like now a lot of these traditional publishers have caught on, but especially then, um, you know, they were not really covering a lot of new and, and super exciting brands. So in terms of the types of brands that we look for at the quality edit, we look for brands that are very mission driven. Um, usually they have very strong founder stories and reason for existing. And of course, like all of our, um, you know, editors as well as content creators are trying and testing these products and making sure that they're high quality, that they work well, that they actually have, you know, really good value. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's kind of how we started it. I know that, you know, it, it maybe on, on face surface seems like it could be a crowded market, but we ourselves were racking our heads around this kind of, you know, the other day. And we were just thinking like, there's actually not that many, the quality edits out there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's actually not as crowded as you might expect for it to be. When you look at how many traditional publishers are out there, Um, and just, you know, there's hundreds of them really that maybe started 15 or 20 years ago. 
there's not that many new age publications that most people could name that are starting to become more like, you know, household name types of publications. I mean, I can probably name, you know, less than three and I'm very much in this space. So um, I feel like we've very much found kind of our, you know, white space um, and yeah, are excited to be really leading the charge there. Yeah, fantastic. You've you've teed up so many things there that I want to ask about. One that I think we should touch upon before we move on is, was there anything from working within the DTC space that you have brought to your work on the quality edit? Is there anything from actually learning and working within that DTC space which has informed your decision-making as as a publication? Yeah, I can can jump in really quickly on that one um, because I actually think that Lauren and I coming from the D2C space uh, is really one of our biggest advantages and what has really propelled the business in so many ways. You know, she mentioned we found a gap on the readership side. We felt like there were so many new brands popping up that we were continuing to test and try. And there wasn't that authority that was really focused on featuring those brands. And then on the flip side, uh, from a brand perspective, there wasn't really a publication that was monetizing in the way that the brand wanted to work with a publication. Mm. So there were all of these traditional publications that we were, were able to kind of finagle some partnerships that ended up being really huge successes for Ritual, but they were really difficult to replicate and they required us sort of dictating to the publication partner what it is we would need to do and see in order to have the partnership back out in order to see a strong ROAS. So um, with that, we really have taken that experience and created a monetization model that is not only promising awareness and impressions to these brands that are, they're venture backed, they're very focused on ROI on ROAS. So we come in and we say, you know, we're gonna tell your brand story, but we're gonna amplify that story and we're gonna drive performance. We're gonna drive ROAS and directly attributable attributable revenue. And I think that that's really driven a lot of the the success for the quality edit and ultimately for the brand partners that we've been working with. Nice. And then I would definitely make a hash of this if I tried to do it in the intro. So I just wondered, could you maybe elaborate on what that monetization model looks like? Why is it so different from everywhere else? Yeah, of course. So um, our monetization model really combines storytelling and third party validation with a, a more traditional performance marketing approach. So how can we reach the quality edits audience? But far beyond that, how can we reach massive audiences through our storytelling and through our third party validation and lean into other platforms to drive that third party amplification um, and really drive customers for those brands. So um, our monetization model is really unlike any publications monetization model and it contains a ton of different elements that really combine performance marketing and UGC creative and landing page testing and influencer marketing and storytelling and editorial marketing and sort of puts it in like one big bow and, um, you know, helps brands acquire customers. So you're busy <laughs> from the sounds of things. That's, a, that's an awful lot of things to be doing. Uh, Laura, one of the things that I know, I've, you know, having spoken to publishers in the UK about this is if they want to do, uh, I suppose, recommendations, affiliate revenue, e-commerce stuff, they trade on their brands and their brand's legacy, their brand's history, and sort of say, well, look, we can be trusted to do this right because you know our brand. The quality at the beginning didn't have that advantage necessarily. So how do you go about building up that relationship with an audience that would allow you to do this effectively? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's, you know, a, a hard one, but I think we're really proud that we have been able to crack that. Um, just last year, we did a reader survey that showed that over 90% of our audience um, trusts our recommendations. Um, and just, you know, for context as a baseline, a lot of the very top tier, most trusted publications, granted, they do have a larger audience, but their trust rating might be something a lot closer to like, you know, 80, 85%. Um, so 90% trust rating is, is very strong. We're very proud of that. And, you know, going to continue to try to make that stat even higher, um, but I think a lot of it goes back to the authenticity of our content and our true investment and in the quality of our content. Um, we're named the quality edit for a reason. Um, and we do try to really put out the highest quality content, I think, especially in an ecosystem in a world where you have a lot of the top tier publishers, you know, using chat GPT and, um, you know, doing the very bare minimum, um, just really trying to fulfill either, you know, getting clicks, but then the article is not interesting, um, you know, releasing a really flashy headline or, um, yeah, just, um, you know, very uh, topical articles that don't really actually say a lot. Mm. I think we, we pride ourselves in being proud of every single piece of content that we put out. And we put out a lot of content, um, usually like at least, you know, a couple pieces a day. Um, but 90, you know, 9% of all of our content is not sponsored and is just editorially driven. And, um, we maintain very high editorial integrity. Every editor, you know, authentically tries, um, and reviews every product that we test and that we write about. So I think it comes down to, you know, the recruitment of our editors and we have editors that have joined us from every other major top tier publication. Um, as well as just really maintaining kind of that high level of trust. And then the other thing is just consistency, right? It is like our fourth year in. So I think trust isn't one um, mm. overnight. It's something that is um, earned every single day. So whether that's across our newsletter touch points or our social media touch points, or obviously our editorial and on-site experience, just making sure that we're building those one-on-one -on -one relationships with our readers and delivering on the content that they're asking for, as well as just maintaining that very high bar of integrity in terms of the types of content that we're putting out. So if you look at what a lot of the other, I suppose, affiliate or e-commerce related space is all about, when people are demonstrating that, you know, their use of products, it's often through video, you know, actual live demonstrations of what's, you know, of them using it. But for the quality edit, how do you make sure that the audience is aware the editors are trying them or actually doing this? And it's not, to your point, something similar to what other publishers are doing. I feel like because we are so authentic and our content is very organic, like I wouldn't even think of <laughs> there being an alternative, to be honest. But um, I actually just, side note, I learned that there's a publication that um, a lot of publicists pitch um, and they pitch these specific editors, but the editors we just learned are all AI. They're not even real people. So they have avatars on their site of, oh, this editor yes. wrote this content piece, but I won't name names, but it's not even a real editor. Yeah, so I, I, I saw that on media. Ridiculous. Be human and actually try products now. Yeah, yeah. Beyond... It's too hard to try products. It's too yeah. hard. Just leave it to, yeah. it's just the AIs can do it all. It's fine. Oh my God. They're very descriptive. They're typically more than a thousand words. So there's 
along with the the photos and the imagery, there's really a very descriptive language coming from that that human, <laughs> um, and really always trying to emphasize the pros and the cons. What what did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? Mm. You know, the, the product is perfect, and we do think that it's important to also be calling out the things that could be improved. Um, so I think just having those those different buckets of almost like a rating or grading scale uh, and what we're measuring, I guess, success of the product or the brand and making sure that within those thousand or thousand plus words, we're really describing that experience of trying that product and all the pros and cons of it. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. I think there's a perverse incentive sometimes in in publishing to only focus on the, to accentuate the positive. Leo, I wonder if, if we could sit with you obviously four years in now. What does TQE's audience look like now? What are the kind of those core demographics? Who are the core, I suppose, power users that you're speaking to regularly? The majority of our audience is female, um, high household income, typically in coastal cities, New York, Los Angeles, um, very avid online shoppers uh, and interest affinities across home, entertainment, parenting, dining, wellness, uh, beauty, really kind of across the spectrum. Um, you know, our, our male audience is small but mighty. They're uh, only about 30% of our readership, but they're also online shoppers. So we definitely have that engaged group of, of people looking for things to buy online, like ourselves. <laughs> um, and they're very conscious and very savvy and um, typically gravitate towards brands that do share in their ethos um, and their values. And because of that, we really steer our brand partnerships in the direction that the audience is looking. So we really look at what is our reader liking and enjoying um, and seeking out and then almost seek out that brand partner. Um, and so a lot of our um, brand partners are female or BIPOC founded, um, large majority over 60%. So we really proud ourselves on really listening to the reader and what they're interested in and then kind of leaning into that. That makes a lot of sense. And it's almost a, I suppose, a, a strategy that was determined by the fact that you were coming in almost from a cold start. You know, you didn't have a legacy brand to lean upon there. You just had to look at an audience and what they wanted and build a product around that. Exactly. So obviously four years in now, audience presumably has shifted slightly or you've definitely grown it. I've seen some of those stats which got shared with me earlier. But where are you sort of staying abreast of changing consumer or audience habits? And how are you sort of, where are you investing, I suppose, to take advantage of the fact that people's consumption habits online are changing all the time? I think that our our audience and niche really started with what is what is the audience looking to purchase? And it was that direct to consumer brand niche that we just knew that we could speak to really well. Um, but obviously that that would change. And you know, we didn't want to build a, a publication that was purely and entirely focused on, on that alone. Um, but it was a great starting point in the sense that it helped to define our audience persona or our reader persona. Um, you know, as mentioned, let's say it's 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 me essentially. It's a, a woman in a bi-coastal city, and she's buying Ritual and Seed and and all of these direct-to-consumer brands. What else is she doing? What what else is she, where is she traveling? And what is she eating? And um, what is she doing? And so, really started to look to her, send her surveys, um, and then start expanding our content buckets based on um, that persona and what she's looking for. 
Yeah. And just to add on to that in terms of kind of how we're staying on top of, you know, the changing habits, um, I think it's actually quite interesting because we're, you know, a team of 10. Mm. So we're still a relatively small team. But interestingly, we've somehow hired for people that are, you know, tastemakers. Um, many of them are actual like influencers in their own right. Um, not only are they influencers, but maybe there are performance marketers or, you know, head of brand or, or head of creative. Um, and so I think just a, culturally as a team, we individually are always searching TikTok. We're looking at newsletters. We're ourselves, you know, follow every influencer. And as Lee mentioned, in many ways, our team is our target demographic. Um, so I feel like because we've hired almost for that cultural tenant of kind of being in the know, um, it makes it just a lot more organic and authentic to for us to be able to spot a trend when we see it. And, you know, a lot easier for us to keep our finger on the pulse. Um, I will say that, you know, there have been other competitors that have popped up and went away over the last four years and, and um, many reasons for why they went away. But I think one of the hardest ones is it's really hard to build a brand that is not authentic. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to say, okay, we want to, you know, speak to like women's interests and be like, you know, two guys that are, you know, 60 years old, you know, <laughs> that are running the publication. It's just, it, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't feel authentic. And like I said, I choose to believe that readers are really smart and can feel that. So I think just the, the authenticity of who we are as a brand and as a company um, extends into kind of every, every facet of the company, including kind of who we hire on our team. How are new audiences finding you? And where are you placing your chips to make sure that people can discover you and you can actually continue to grow? Yeah, um, I can speak to this and Lee, feel free to add on. Um, but I think it's a combination of a lot of different um, things that include, you know, really building up our email channels and our email marketing. Um, we've really started to invest in our organic social and have started to build a cult following there. Um, and we're also testing a lot of, um, you know, influencer and even celebrity content. So having them, um, you know, be voices within our community that are contributing to, um, our editorial and therefore sharing with their audience. So let's say that we have someone come in and do like a, a founder come in and do a gift guide for us. Mm. Now that founder is like sharing that article on their social media platforms. And that brings in their entire audience. And a lot of times, influencers follow other influencers. So um, I feel like that is, you know, really helpful. Um, like you said, it's, it's not easy to kind of, you know, break through, but I think especially in 2024, as a company, we're really focusing on um, cultural relevancy. So um, I think that does include just, you know, one, making sure that our editorial is really topical and relevant and of the moment and what our readers want to be seeing. Um, but to really like injecting ourselves in the broader culture, whether that's through influencers or celebrities um, or other tastemakers and um, trying to really join that conversation. Yeah, I think that's spot on. The only thing I can add to that is that uh, the brands themselves almost act as influences for us in some instances. Um, we 
we have often been told from these brands that the way we've told their story or the way that we've covered their product is the best they've ever seen, that we've we've written a story that is better than their internal teams could have, could have written. And so they're inclined to share that. Uh, and I think a lot of these brands have developed pretty cult followings. It's really one of the pillars of direct-to-consumer marketing is that they need to have these incredibly engaged audiences. So they go to their audience and say, hey, check out what the quality wrote, quality edit wrote about us. And they're all of a sudden, you've kind of tapped into their millions of followers too. Nice. That's such good validation for what you're doing in your mission. If you can get these brands themselves going, yeah, they're doing it better than we could. Yeah, forget it. Get you know, get rid of our team. We'll just do everything out. <laughs> we'll just do everything with the quality of it. So I know that uh, coming from a DC background, I want to ask, you talk about um, performance publishing. And I wondered, is that a a deliberate evocation of performance marketing? Or really, you know, what does performance publishing look like to you guys? What does that mean to you? As as you mentioned, we both come from performance marketing um, backgrounds. Um, But I think in the past, we found that a lot of times when you are working with a performance agency and you're doing a lot of, you know, advertising on meta platforms, that advertising is actually at an expense to the brand and it's Mm. not actually helping the brand equity. Um, So I think, um, you know, as Lee mentioned earlier, there were several strategies that helped Ritual find scale and efficiency on paid social. Many of them had to do with third-party credibility and validation or essentially like how can you bring in a customer um, into your website that already is coming in with education, with the credibility of someone else saying, you know, I tried this. This is why I loved it, which, as you can imagine, is so much more impactful than a brand saying, we're so great and this is why. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, we um, performance publishing, like Lee said earlier, really helps brands arbitrage success on paid social by combining all the things across the storytelling piece, as well as the performance piece Mm. that we saw to work really well at Ritual, including, again, like third party validation, high quality editorial landing page development, ad creative, influencer casting, paid social media management and strategy. And by the way, these are all things that typically brands have to go to one partner for or one agency for, for each scope of work. But because we've kind of pulled together all into one synergistic strategy, and I would argue there's not really any other publishers that are working in this way where they have an organic publication, but they've kind of built a performance agency out of the publication Mm -hmm. like we have. Um, we felt like it deserved really like its own, you know, its own term with performance (laughs) publishing, really, again, combining the best of storytelling, um, you know, with performance. And um, we, you know, this approach has driven over 50 million in incremental revenue for our clients. And we really do believe that this is the future of publishing. We've seen publishers big and small, like try to kind of replicate our model. um, And you know, there's, there's kind of an interesting, it's such an interesting time in the ecosystem where so many traditional publishers, unfortunately, are folding or having, you know, massive layoffs or, you know, their print publication is dying. And, you know, I think we do feel like we have found something that works in terms of like a new way for publishers to to monetize. So like I said, that's why we believe it deserved its own term. And, um, uh, yeah, we're excited to see where we can take it from here. Yeah, and thankfully we have that that word of mouth, and I think that that also really um, you know speaks for itself. But it's funny because we we actually don't have our services like anywhere like listed. There's mm. no like website 
right? That's like, that sort of explains performance publishing or what we're offering. Uh, that, that will soon change, uh, but it is kind of funny, you know, in the first three and a half years, uh, all of our business really has been word of mouth for the most part. I mean, that's, again, though, really good validation for the fact that you are obviously outperforming on behalf of these clients. So that's fantastic. Obviously, Lauren, before you touched upon the fact that it is a very difficult publishing ecosystem at the moment, not just for kind of legacies, but for some of the digital pure plays as well. You know, and it stems from a variety of different factors, whether that be, you know, taking VC funding and then being expected to grow very fast or not finding an audience or kind of the the digital advertising ecosystem falling away from beneath what seemed originally like a very strong publishing strategy. So where are you looking for sustainable growth? You know, on the advertising side of the business, as Lee mentioned, I think it's pretty incredible to be three and a half years in and have all of our business be word of mouth. So I do feel like on the advertising business, we have found something that's scalable. We're going to continue to look to add new services um, into that, um, even coming up as soon as this um, this year. So we're really excited about that. Um, and then on the um, kind of more, you know, brand and organic side, um, I think we um, have figured out how to monetize really well. And mm. we've been really focusing on how do we best use, you know, that profit and those dollars to really invest in the brand again, to bring like that cultural relevancy to, um, bring more awareness for the quality of it. So we're really going to be, um, investing this year in email marketing, um, into organic social, into our influencer strategy, um, and, um, you know, also just listening to our readers, um, focusing our, on our on-site experience, on our content, um, and yeah, just really diving into some of the more organic brand areas. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And to, to touch on that, uh, I think it's really interesting that there's, there's so many changes, both on the publishing side of the house, but also on the performance marketing mm. side of the house. Um, and you almost, you almost need both to diversify from risk on both parts. Um, I think from a performance marketing standpoint, there have been the iOS updates that have just like trash data. There's, you know, cookies disappearing. There's, there's, there's all of these up changes that we're having to stay afloat from. And I think that one thing that's going to be really important as that continues to unfold is the first party audience data mm. really um, and really owning that audience and not being reliant on um, some of the bigger bigger platforms to reach bigger audiences so um, and I think brands will will continue to seek out media partners that have audiences that they, that they can reach that are aligned with their brands so um, there's there's this twofold approach where you know we we, we want to grow the services side, the performance publishing business that has driven a lot of the success, but also we really want to grow the organic uh, side of the business and really build the first party audience data. There's a virtuous circle there because the better the you better you're serving your audience, the more likely they are to trust you with that data, which then allows you to actually do better work on behalf of your brand partners. You've, you mentioned building out that email side a couple of times now. Email has been uh, uh, quietly powering some of the biggest publishing businesses for years, and it's really come back into vogue. I wondered, what are some of your plans? How does it differ from your existing publishing strategy? And what will sort of the, an email offer to an audience who might like the quality and its content, but in a different way? Yeah, I can I can speak to that a little you bit. You want to take that? Yes. Um, you know, honestly, we have 
been neglecting focusing on the email list in at least the first, you know, two years or so. Um, and really, a, a lot of a lot of this we haven't mentioned that we were side hustling for a while. So we were really able to bootstrap for the first year or two um, and just had to keep the priorities really, really slim um, and email, growing our email list didn't really fall in that bucket at, at first. So we're playing catch up a little bit on that. Um, but I think that there's so many things that uh, we're gonna start implementing to grow the email list. Uh, one of which is just, more more powerful email capture mm. actually offering our our readers something in exchange for signing up to that email list which we I know you know in the D2C world it's like that's the first thing you do like here's 20% off sign up for the email list um and I think that we will really lean into that whether it's giveaways with our brand partners um you know or even fun type of personality quizzes we we do this great um content vertical around horoscope uh, gift guides that I think we can really lean into and send somebody their ideal horoscope guide and, you know, play around with what we can give back in order in, in order to get those emails. So that'll be new for us, but I think that that'll really help to increase the size of the list more quickly. And then from there, just increasing the, the quality of the content that we're putting through to that list um, and starting to really fine tune the various buckets uh, because we are a lifestyle publication and we have strengths in a few different areas, whether it's parenting or travel, mm -hmm. for example, who wants to see the parenting content? Who doesn't want to see the parenting content? Same for travel and starting to really refine the email list and make sure that we, we are sending relevant content to those audiences. Th this next question is less about the quality of it and it's more about the two of you as founders because you know you mentioned it was a side hustle you mentioned that you effectively bootstrapped it for a while and media voices is a side hustle for me and you know my co-hosts we we have side hustles coming off the side hustles at this point it's very fractal yeah. and every single time i lose a subscriber to my own Substack, it, it makes me want to give up so how did the two of you find <laughs> that resilience to to keep going because it can't all have been you know gravy right from the start no, it's never always gravy. <laughs> um, I think that we were very lucky to have a really strong co-founding team and squad. So we never feel like we're alone. We're always going through the highs and the lows with one another. And then I think I think performance marketing trains you mm. for the highs and lows. You know, like it's either you're either the hero and you're you're driving all of the business's success and everybody's kissing your feet you're incredible <laughs> or you know everyone hates <laughs> you and you're wasting money and you're not performing and you really just have to kind of figure out how to stay even keel through those peaks and valleys and I think that you know we've been trained well to do that but doesn't mean that they they weren't lows along the way Ladies and gentlemen, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Media Voices. You can sign up to our daily newsletter at Voices.media. That goes out every day of the working week and contains the four most important stories of the day. It also contains a link to our community forum, which you should be signing up to anyway. So go to Voices.media and join the conversation. And it's all had a very sexy rebrand. And it looks completely new. It is so shiny now. Yeah. 
very excited about that. Uh, and if you are a publisher with a podcast, you should enter the Publisher Podcast Awards. Entries are now open until March the 8th. Uh, you can enter at publisherpodcasts.com. We're holding the Publisher Podcast Awards at the same time as... I was going to take a big breath for this. The <laughs> Publisher Podcast Summit and the Publisher Newsletter Summit on June the 12th in London. So if you have any interest at all in podcasts, newsletters, anything along those lines, um, bookmark that date. The agenda will be um, released soon. Um, there's going to be loads of hands-on workshops, case studies, all focused on making your podcasts and newsletters the best they can be. So publisherpodcasts.com to sign up for the awards and um, the summit. You can actually buy summit tickets now. Nice. If you want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but ladies and gentlemen, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week. And until then, goodbye. <laughs>